everybody. Welcome back to the Grey Malkin Laid podcast, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Now, we recently reviewed the death of Professor X storyline, although it wasn't Professor X, it was the change to me. <laughs> uh, and we're going to do a couple of uh, episodes, three episodes exactly, uh, regarding Magneto and Toad's appearances in The Avengers in 1968 in a Roy Thomas, George Tuska story. Uh, so we're going to be covering that today. But first, we're going to spend some time talking to the renowned and esteemed professional, uh, Tony Isabella. Tony, it's so nice to have you here. Welcome. Happy to be here. I'm also thrilled to be joined by uh, Hector and John, uh, who are two independent artists I've followed online and have commissioned work with. Now, normally I'm recording in front of my commission while I could point to you, your art, <laughs> but uh, but because I'm uh, out of town today, we're recording from a different spot. Uh, hi, John. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. It's great to be here. And hi, Hector. How are you? Hi, uh, I'm I'm all right. I'm, it's a little bit of a surreal experience because I've been working with your podcast for the past two weeks, maybe. <laughs> so when you said the, intro- the introduction, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a face with the voice. Uh, let's, let's let uh, both John and then Hector introduce yourselves briefly. Tell us a little bit about the work you guys are doing. And then uh, we're going to spend some time getting to know Tony and his incredible work and career. Uh, John, do you want to go first? Okay. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm John. I mostly go online by my handle, Rake. So Maybe you recognize me there. I don't know. It's a long story. Uh, yeah, I'm an artist. I live here in England. I've been told I have a very recognizable accent. You tell me. I don't know. <laughs> and like a lot of people online, a lot of really cool people who I look up to, I'm currently obsessed with doing artwork for the Hellfire Gala. I've set myself the challenge of doing new fashions for all of the original Marauders. No one cares about Blockbuster, but I seem to. So here we are. <laughs> And you're going to wake up the blockbuster nation. (laughs) (laughs) And Hector, go ahead. Um, Hi, I'm I'm Hector. I'm um, an illustrator, comic book artist, whatever needs to be done with a pencil. Um, I am living in the UK right now, but I'm Spanish. Um, And I'm currently working on things that I cannot talk about. (laughs) No, 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 no. that's that's one of the tricks we have a lot of professionals on and there's always the i can't tell you what i'm working on because it hasn't been announced yet (laughs) it's it sounds so much better than what it is really it's like it's just a standard nda and you know (laughs) no i think that's great now uh uh i just want to check in does everybody use he him pronouns yeah we like to make sure I, i sometimes use they but i'm pretty casual with it it's all right Okay. Either way, uh, we uh, we just had uh, Rihanna Pratchett on uh, a few episodes ago, and I, I had to tell her at the beginning, like, I find your accent delightful, but that's something a British person has never said to an American. <laughs> <laughs> so, John and Hector, it's great to have you both here. Thank you. Uh, now, Mr. Tony Isabella has a long and historic career in comic books. Uh, Tony, I, I have done a lot of research about your career. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. I've been a Marvel reader. Uh, and I actually worked on the Marvel handbooks for uh, for several years a while back. Uh, so I've, I've done deep reviews of a lot of your work. Uh, let's kind of start at the beginning. You were a Marvel fan at the beginning who used to write into the books a lot, right? There's a, there's a lot of uh, appearances of Tony Isabella in the letters pages as a youth. Tell us a little bit about what you grew up loving and what, what it was like to get your letters printed back then. Well, I, um, I learned to read before I was four years old. Uh, 
members of my family would read comic books to me and I wanted to cut out the middleman. So I could read comic books on my own by four and could write before the age of five. In fact, in, in kindergarten, I used to get pulled out of kindergarten quite often so the principal could show me off to visitors as if her and her school had had a damn thing to do with the fact <laughs> that I could read and write. I could read and write because I wanted to read and write. And the first thing I can remember writing was probably a review of, of one of my then favorite TV shows, Zorro, uh, the Walt Disney show. Um, I loved comic books. I, I, I read, uh, you know, I started out with the DCs, but picked up other stuff. Uh, but it wasn't until July 63 on a very boring family vacation that I bought Fantastic Four Annual Number One, and somehow everything just clicked for me with that issue. I, I still think it's one of the greatest comics ever. Uh, somehow I realized that, hey, people get paid for doing this, and I want that job. So from like the age of, of 12 on, uh, I started training myself to, to learn how to write comic books. I would act out stories with my little army guys. Um, I, I got a copy of Stan Lee's Secrets Behind Comics and used to try to write scripts with the two-column method that was shown in there. And I started writing letters to uh, the letters pages. Uh, and as a result of that, I got, I got to be known. Uh, before I got in the comics, I was corresponding with, with Roy Thomas, uh, Steve Englehart, uh, Murray Boltonoff over at DC. Um, learned a lot from them. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was great seeing the letters in, in comics. Uh, I had an awful lot of them published. But as I said, I, you know, I'd meet people at conventions and they would know who I was from the letters. And that kind of gave me an in when... Uh, I've been working at the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Uh, college wasn't really for me. I lasted less than a year. The only class I was interested in was the writing class. And the teacher there told me not to come to class anymore, just turn in my work. Because she said she couldn't teach me anything. Um, so I was working at the Cleveland Plain Dealer as a copy assistant. Uh, Cleveland, uh, Cleveland Plain Dealer was a very... It was bad newspaper. It was the tool of the rich and the, and the famous. Uh, and when we went on strike, the publisher called the mayor and our picket line was attacked by mounted policemen. Jeez. I got knocked to the ground by a, a terrified copy editor. A horse's hoofs, hoof landed inches from my face. Uh, I dusted my, got up, dusted myself all, off, went home. By that time, I had my own apartment. Called up Roy Thomas and said, hey, are there any jobs at Marvel? <laughs> and as it turned out, there was. Uh, they needed somebody to work with Stan Lee on the launch of the uh, British. Uh, they had already been they they had already been launched, but they needed somebody to work with Stan on the British weeklies, which were uh, I mean John and Hector probably know what they are, but they were reprints of American comics. Uh, came out weekly. They split issues into three or four parts so that they would more closely resemble the traditional British weeklies. Um, and my job was to, you know, the qualifications were you had to be able to write, edit, design covers, and know, know the history of the Marvel Universe, which at that time, you know, we're talking 1972, 
it was a lot easier to know than today because it had only been around for a decade. Um, and I, you know, once you got up at Marvel, the staff pay wasn't great, but they'd give you lots of freelance opportunities. So I was writing articles for the black and white magazines like Dracula Lives. Uh, I was writing shorts, you know, short stories for those same black and white magazines. Eventually started writing stuff for the color comics, doing fill-in issues. And eventually got to the point where, you know, I was assigned several titles regularly at the same time I was editing some of the black and white magazines. Now, this so was my, a this was a time, just to interject quickly, where the Comics Code Authority was kind of relaxing its hold on things a little bit. And horror yeah. comics made a huge comeback, right? You wrote so many of those books with, uh, yeah. with the horror characters. Yeah, the horror, you know, horror was, uh, it wasn't a long-lived trend really i mean i forget when the first issue of tomb of dracula came out uh but most of those black and white horror magazines only lasted you know 12 or 13 issues which was you know a little over two years uh, in fact when i when i was assigned ghost rider the overall plan on ghost rider was to turn it into more of a superhero book than a than a horror book mm -hmm. Yeah, and your work on Ghost Rider was fantastic. Uh, you you broke into the industry relatively seamlessly, and clearly you work hard and you're good at your craft. But uh, those early days, we got to interview interview Roy uh, a few weeks back on here, and he and, and Steve actually both uh, both of them are just incredible professionals. But it sounds like you really just fit in right away. You know, Roy Thomas was a guy. You know, he if you showed him you could do the work, Roy gave you a lot of freedom. And I thrived on that. Um, and, you know, it was, I worked way too hard. Uh, I, I sometimes was, I had a sleeping bag at the office and I would, there would be times when I would spend the night uh, in the Marvel offices because we had, you know, we had deadlines. We had to get these books out. Um, but yeah, Roy gave me a lot of freedom, a lot of opportunities. Uh, there were people, you know, no names here that thought I hadn't earned my dues, but you know, I put in the time I put in the work. Um, I, I like to think I was almost everybody who was working for me when I was an editor was older than me. Um, in some case, decades older than me. And yet I seem to have earned the respect of, of the people I were working with. Um, I especially loved Mike Esposito and Frank Giacoya who are kind of like my Italian, New York Italian uncles. Uh, and, and they were great. I mean, and they, they would knock themselves out for me. Uh, I mean, I, I worked well with the older people. This was also a time in comics when there was a lot of effort put in, well, by certain creators to put characters of color in prominent positions for the first time. Uh, now, are you the creator of Black Goliath? Am I remembering that correctly? Um, well, Black Goliath was... was um, and I'm blanking on his name. Oh my God, I'm blanking on the character's name. Uh, Bill, Bill Foster, right? Bill Foster. And yeah. I, should, I have a friend who's a professor named Bill Foster, so I should remember that. Um, I needed somebody. He had been introduced in the Avengers by, I think, Stan, working with Hank Pym when Hank Pym was trapped at like 10 feet tall. Um, Oh, that's nobody, right. He was like his uh, he was like his assistant in the lab. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and I just thought I needed a strong protagonist for Luke Cage, but I didn't want to do a typical villain. And it occurred to me that, well, you know, there's no reason Bill Foster can't use Pim's the Pim particles because Hank wasn't using them at that time. I never wanted to call him Black Goliath. I wanted to call him Giant Man. 
Giant Man sold really badly, which is why the Hulk booted him out of Tales to Astonish. Sure, sure. So, so they told me I couldn't call him Giant Man, although eventually they did start calling him Giant Man. Uh, but my history with creators of with characters of color actually starts when I was a teenager in Cleveland. Cleveland was a very segregated city. I had started a comic book club uh, near where I lived on the west side of Cleveland. And my first black friends were comic book fans who came from the east side of Cleveland to the west side of Cleveland to um, attend my meetings. And, you know, I was about 17. Diversity wasn't really part of my language. But it just struck me that, you know, it was unfair that my black friends didn't have more characters like them. So I had told myself if I was lucky enough to get into comics, which was still my goal, uh, I would try to work on characters of color and create characters of color. So at Marvel, I, I wrote a bunch of Luke Cage stories. I wrote some stories with the Falcon. Uh, I wrote, um, you know, Black the first issue of Black Goliath and conceived that series. Um, and then when I got to DC, uh, I created Black Lightning. Black Lightning, which is probably what you are most well known for if you had to choose one thing. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and if that ends up being my legacy, I'm really good with it. Black I, know how much character. Me, I know how much the character means to readers. Um, doesn't seem to mean a whole lot to DC editorial, but the, you know, I've had readers come up to me with tears in their eyes, hugging me because Black Lightning was the first time they saw themselves in a comic book. Mm-hmm. Um, I've over the years, things like, well, John Ridley, the you know, Oscar winning screenwriter of, of 12 Years a Slave, uh, credits my Black Lightning comics in the 70s as encouraging him to be a writer. Uh, and, you know, that's a pretty that's a pretty nice thing to have it, it as part of my legacy. Plus, I've then, had... Well, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I've had people who became school teachers uh, because of Jefferson Pierce. Uh, so, yeah, the character means an awful lot to me, an awful lot of awful lot to other people. And of course, the TV series was was just a wonderful thing in my life. Uh, you know, working with with the TV show behind the scenes and getting to know the cast and the writers, and um, they always treated me with great love and respect on the set. Um, and then my personal favorite of your creations, uh, if I'm crediting this right, is Misty Knight, who is just yeah. an incredible, indelible character who's beloved by so many. Tell us a little bit about your creation of Misty Knight. Well, um, I, I had agreed to write three issues of Iron Fist and immediately discovered that I really hated writing second person captions. You know, you are Iron Fist and someone has just kicked you in the face, that kind of shit. Uh, so I said, I got to give him somebody to talk to so that I can get rid of those captions. Uh, I went out to the movies, uh, as I often did, with, with some of the younger Marvel artists, mostly black artists, Ron Wilson, Arville Jones, Keith Pollard, Desmond Jones, Arv's younger brother. Uh, and we saw this movie, Black Belt Jones, with, with Jim Kelly. Uh, not a great movie, but there was an actress, Gloria Hendry, who played a female martial artist that was really kind of cool. And when we got out of the theater, I went to Arvel, who was drawing Iron Fist at, you know, was going to be working on Iron Fist with me. And I said, you know, we need a character like that in Iron Fist. And and Arvel says, okay, what are you going to call her? He said, Misty Knight. And he goes, with a Y or an I? 
And I go, with a Y, I'm not a savage. Uh, <laughs> Arvel said, okay. Um, and then, you know, my, my concept of her uh, was that she would be like kind of the older sister who would be constantly educating, you know, naive Danny Rand. Um, now that said, Arvel and I worked on exactly two pages of Misty, Misty Night in the Iron Fist story we did. Chris Claremont did all the heavy lifting on Misty Night. The bionic arm came from, from Chris. Uh, you know, her whole background came from Chris. Um, so I always like to tell people that Chris did all the heavy lifting. I still keep the money, but I want Chris <laughs> to get the credit. Um, yeah, she's a character that's been all over the Marvel Universe at this point. The only thing I don't like about Marvel's handling of Misty Knight is idiotic John Byrne, who has this weird idea that if people have similar hairstyles, they must be related. Uh, for example, Flint Marco, the Sandman, is related to Norman Osborn because they both had bad Ditko hair. <laughs> so he decided that a black woman with an afro who was an incidental character in Marvel team up number one was actually Misty Knight. And, and people have claimed that that was Misty's first appearance, which it wasn't. Uh, it was a stupid thing. I, you know, that wasn't Misty Knight. That was some other character. Misty Knight is Misty Knight, no matter what Byrne thinks. <laughs> now your most relevant work with the X-Men uh, after these sixties books were canceled, a lot of the characters were kind of left adrift, particularly the original team. Uh, we saw after Claremont took over the book, he put a lot of love into Cyclops and Jean Grey, who became the Phoenix. Uh, we saw Beast getting uh, special treatment with Blue Fur with Steve Englehart and eventually joining the Avengers, which left Angel and Iceman adrift. And uh, Mr. Isabella uh, drafted them into the champions. Let, oh, let me no, ask actually, you. actually, I have to give you the true history of the champions. Uh, the original lineup for the champions was the Angel, and the Iceman, period. I wanted to do Route 66 with young heroes, you know, handsome young heroes, traveling the country, meeting hot chicks. Uh, of course, this was before we found out Bobby Drake was gay. But in the 60s, we, you know, in the 70s, we didn't know that. Uh, and just having adventures all across the country. When I brought that concept into the editors, Len Wein and Marv Wolfman, I was told, excuse me a minute, <coughs> let me wet my whistle here. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, as a formerly closeted gay kid myself, I, I spent a lot of time in my teens and 20s being very heavily interested in girls in an effort to fit in. And Iceman <laughs> did a lot of that in the comics. <laughs> oh, yeah, certainly he did. Um, but anyway, so Len Wein says, well, all superhero groups have to have five members. Now, Len was writing Fantastic Four at the time. And I said, you mean like Fantastic Four? And he said, exactly. Now, I love Len Wein. He was a great guy, terrific writer. As an editor, he would sometimes take positions that seemed perfectly right to him, but would make no sense to someone like me. So he said, every book has to have a woman character, you know, as part of the team. 
Well, I had just written Black Widow out of Daredevil. So I said, yeah, Black Widow. I love Natasha. I didn't write her out of Daredevil because I didn't like her. I wrote her out of Daredevil because I thought the relationship was weakening both of them. Uh, then he said every book had to have a strong man. Well, nobody was using Hercules. I always thought Hercules was fun. So I said Hercules. And then the one that really drove me nuts was every book has to have somebody who's got their own book. Every superhero team has to have a member with their own book. And he wanted me to use Luke Cage. I, you know, Luke Cage belongs to New York. I was already planning to, to if I had to do the super team thing, I was going to put him in California. But I was writing Ghost Rider, who was also in California at the time. And I figured, you know, I can keep Ghost Rider busy enough in his own book that I don't have to use him in every issue of Champions. So that's how we got that strange, strange lineup. Now, were you an X-Men fan uh, growing up? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I love the Lee and Kirby stuff. Um, you know, stuff like the Juggernaut, Juggernaut two-parter. And uh, just, I always liked them. Even, even you know, when Roy was writing them and, and they didn't really do a lot with major villains or anything, I enjoyed the book. Um, and certainly, you know, when, when Roy was teaming up with Neil Adams, I was over the moon for that, for that book. Um, at that time, it was either, either Avengers or X-Men would be my favorite title at any, in any given month. Uh, John, are you familiar with the Champions? I haven't read as much of them as I should like to, but one of my favorite characters is someone who's adjacent to the champions, who I believe you created, which is Darkstar. I'm yeah. very interested in her, and all of my pursuits of champions comics have been so I can get that good Darkstar content. <laughs> Darkstar, well, my last issue of Champions, uh, which I didn't want to be my last issue. I was leaving Marvel. To, to go work at DC because Marvel had just gotten really chaotic. But I, I had said, you know, when it, when we had kind of like, okay, what are you going to finish up before you go? I said, well, I'd started this three-parter in champions, the, the man who, who created the black widow. Uh, and I really wanted to do that. So I had these, uh, a team of villains that, you know, were mostly Russian and the, the point of that three-parter was to reveal at the end that Ivan was actually the Black Widow's family uh, father. I mean, it was like a, a Russian tragedy type of thing. Mm. Um, he was unable to save her mother and brother, so he didn't feel unworthy. He felt unworthy of claiming a father's love, but he, you know, he loved his daughter, and he always wanted to stay close to her to help protect her. And that would have been the big revelation at the end of the three issues. Marvel wanted to move me off the book sooner. Um, you know, Marvel had, you know, Marvel's ideas of, of what they wanted me to finish up were greatly different from what I wanted to finish up. So, you know, I didn't end up doing what they wanted or, or what I wanted. Uh, now, John, have, I know you do a lot of classic redesigns of characters that are gorgeous. Have you done Darkstar? Uh, I have. <laughs> um, well, I've done a headshot of her. I've created a poster for um, a club night that I believe she would host on Krakoa. I imagine her as a very 80s kind of dark wave synth wave musician. I think that would lend itself very well to her power signature. But yeah, I just want to do that big high updo that she has. 
Uh, John did a gorgeous redesign of Eunice the Untouchable for me, which when my best friend saw, I opened it up. He's like, where can I meet that guy? <laughs> and then Hector, I know, uh, I know you're a big Angel fan. Hector did a gorgeous piece of the Angel for me. Have you read the Champions at all? Uh, yes, I, th I think I, I think I mentioned um, that the first ever comic book that I bought with my own money, I was like super tiny. It was a, a paperback with uh, Ghost Raider from um, Tony. Uh, it was a random assortment of numbers. And then at the very end, they include the first issue of the champions. And I remember I was completely blown away by the possibilities. You, you had everything in there. You had mutants, you have Greek gods, you have spirits of vengeance. It was amazing. I'm, I'm, I, I'm still, I, sorry. No, I'm rather proud of the fact that I, actually found a semi-logical way to get all those five characters yes. together. I, I remember that everybody has like a like the perfect foil in the first issue. It was um, like birth women for the mutants, warrior women for uh, Natasha and things like that. Yeah, it was brilliant. I'm, I'm still mourning it because it didn't survive a summer with my cousins. But oh. um, <laughs> I remember, well, that was really the start of, you know, my story with Marvel. It was that that issue it was amazing. Oh, I'm so glad. Uh, Tony, you mentioned your love of Fantastic Four Annual Number One. The thing I love most about that issue is it's just this giant Marvel playground. Every character oh, from yeah. everywhere just all mixed together. And that's what Champions feels like to me. Yeah. You get all of these characters from different places who are just kind of tossed in the same pot. You see what melts out, you know. Uh, the, the most character relevant work you did, when you start the Champions, you see Angel and Iceman enrolled in school. They literally comment about how everybody's moved on, but <laughs> they just have had these normal quiet yeah. lives. Um, and you do some really gorgeous work with Angel himself, who who both of his parents have died. Yeah. And early on in the book, we see him uh, getting their inheritance, uh, which is such a defining characteristic of Angel ever since is he was the flying guy, but then he became the billionaire flying guy kind of during your work. Uh, what was your love of these two particular characters? What made you want to tell these stories? Well, you know, I, I felt like, I mean, I thought that, again, my original concept was just the two of them. And I thought having this re this billionaire kid and this middle-class kid traveling together would give me a chance to write some incredibly funny dialogue. Uh, and just, just the fact that their, their two worlds were so different would make them fun to write. So, uh, you know, that was part of it. Uh, I, I, as I said, I liked, you know, Stanley and Roy Thomas's handling of, of, the classic characters, the first wave of the Marvel superheroes, just has always stuck with me. I mean, um, almost all, you know, for the most part, letter perfect. Uh, I mean, there were mistakes. I mean, Professor Xavier was kind of a creep, uh, lusting after Gene and his thoughts. Um, yeah, we've had a lot of words on my podcast about yeah. Professor X. <laughs> but, but no, they really did. I mean, their their versions of these characters are still, for me, the definitive ones. Um, if I were ever to write for Marvel again, which I, I'm not disinterested in, um, that would be my biggest challenge, finding uh, the medium ground between the classic characters as I enjoyed them and whatever they've done with them now. Um, you know, well, you, you mentioned earlier, there'd be that challenge of un, un, uh, deciphering a 60 year history, right? Yeah. We, uh, we recently did a really lengthy two part episode on Magneto. Uh, and it took me weeks of research because yeah. you, you take all of his chronology 
And then, you know, here's this story written in 1995 that you have to go back and insert in 1960s between these two and then this yeah. group before. And uh, when you when you stack it all up, it's it's quite lengthy for particular characters. Are you following the current X-Men books at all now? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Uh, I tried. Uh, there's a couple of them I liked. I like I, I like Marauders. Marauders was great because uh, because I love the the political undertones of Marauders. Um, I think they did this. Um, it was an X Force that were like trying to track down dead mutants so they could be revived or something like that or find out what well, X Factor X Factor X Factor. Yeah, yeah. they were like the uh, detectives, and I really liked that until, of course, they immediately sent them to Mojo World. Mojo being one of those characters that I have just never warmed up to. It kind of reminds me of an ex-lawyer of mine who, 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 who sadly, and I say that very uh, sarcastically, sadly met a bad end. There have, uh, there have been a lot done with all of these characters over the years. How did you react to the news years ago that Iceman came out? You know, uh, my first thought as I think almost any guy who had followed the characters from the beginning would have been, is a, but he was chasing skirts all the time. <laughs> but then I, I started thinking of the gay friends in my life, and, and some of them did not, you know, either realize or accept that they were gay until later in life. So I was saying, yeah, why not? Why not? It doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't hurt anything, and, and maybe it helps. In, uh, in X-Men number one, there's a scene for the very first issue where Cyclops, Angel, and Beast are all staring out the window at Jean Grey, like, ooh la la, look at the girl. And Iceman's walking away going, what's the big deal? It's just a girl. And you, <laughs> you look for these little nuggets all the way through. Yeah, I guess, I guess, no, he was portrayed as much younger. Right. And, I, and you know, I, I doubt very much that Stan and Jack said, oh, he's gay. We'll do this little thing, but... No, I don't think they meant for that, but it's still fun to pick uh, or to put oh, it. Oh yeah, no, I, you know that's, that's one of the. I mean, it's not something I have a whole lot of interest in doing unless I'm working on a character. But I know the fans enjoy, uh, you know, going through all the little details and everything, which I'm fine with. Um, there are things, you know. I mean, I, this intense scrutiny of characters. The one thing I don't like about it, and and unfortunately, this was codified by the marvel handbooks i don't want to know how many pounds of whatever spider-man can lift you know i live in the real world people always can extend what you would think would be their abilities in times of stress and times of need um and so yeah what when they say well hulk can lift this much and spider-man can lift this much and everything to me it's just like then you're, you're just playing you know Dungeons and Dragons with superheroes. If if you if you break stuff down that that closely, the uh, the handbooks was always the great enterprise of trying to quantify the data, right? <laughs> like put it all together, got, fill in the mixes. The, the I got so many calls from people asking, like, um, "Oh, I did a Marvel team up, which revealed that uh, oh, the character with the whip, Whiplash, I guess, or Blacklash." Uh, and I'd said it in Cleveland because I decided he was from Cleveland. And and they once, you know, called me up and said, what are the names of his parents? So I can't remember whether I told them Tony and Barb after myself and my wife or Lewis <laughs> and Florence after my parents. But whatever it was, they used it. Oh, that's funny. 
those little nuggets. When I wrote the handbooks, I would sometimes fill in names. Uh, like I'd give my little sister's first name for yeah. someone's mom or something. Yeah. <laughs> because those little pieces of canon. <laughs> uh, now, one of my favorite issues of yours is not X-Men related, but I reread just the other day uh, for the first time in a long time. You did a what if story uh, shortly after Gwen Stacy was killed in the comics, which was such a heartbreaking story. And you did a what if Gwen Stacy lived. Uh, where where Spider-Man rescues her just in time uh, and then marries her in the same issue. And then it still kind of goes dark or bad. Uh, d- tell us just a little about that story, if you remember it. Well, I, w- I was pretty new at Marvel when uh, the issue with Gwen Stacy dying came out. And from the moment I, I saw that story, I said, this is a really stupid idea. It's a waste of a character. Gwen, before they made Gwen just a typical girlfriend, Gwen, Gwen had an edge to her. She was the smartest Peter Parker. Her dad was a cop. So, so that was something that would work in well with, you know, with Spider-Man's life. Uh, and then they just threw it all away. They, they killed, you know, her father. You know, they made her a typical girlfriend damsel in distress. And then they killed her because they had a lack of imagination about what this character could be. Um, I read, an I, interview, I read an interview where the writer thought that she was too good for Peter. He's like, someone messed up needs to love Peter and she's too put together. <laughs> Writers. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, then, you know, so the minute what if was announced, I told Roy, I wanted to do that one. And he assigned it to me. It would have come out earlier in the run, but Gil Kane took forever to, to do the layouts on it. But yeah, that was, you know, and and I'd always intended to do a sequel. I pitched a sequel to every subsequent What If editor. Nobody ever wanted to pick up on it. But there was more to the story. Um, The the unhappy ending, well, it wasn't as unhappy as some people thought. Yes, Peter Parker was exposed. Uh, he, He was a hunted man. But J. Jonah Jameson had lost the support of his finest employee right. uh, and, and, you know, and Gwen and, and Robbie were going to do everything they could to, you know, they were, they were on Peter's side. They were going to clear his name. So to me, it wasn't an entirely unhappy ending. And as I said, I had hoped to do the sequel uh, that never happened. Uh, I was very glad to see uh, Emma Stone portray Gwen Stacy in the movie because that was more how I saw Gwen Stacy, this incredibly brave, incredibly smart young woman. Um, and I guess she's, you know, I, I don't follow all this stuff, but I guess she's like got several different identities now. She's back, multiple universe Gwens or whatever. Yeah, they put out a book a few years back called Spider Gwen, and she's become kind of a teenage rocker, indie girl uh, who has come over to the main universe a lot. And there's a lot of variations for her. She's a pretty beloved and pretty fantastic character, actually. I was glad to see that in, in No Way, uh, Spider Man No Way Home, uh, that the method that when Mary Jane was, uh, MJ was tossed off uh, the bridge, that the way one of the Spider Men saved her was exactly how I'd had. Spider-Man saver in my what if story mm-hmm. didn't get a thank you for that, but, but <laughs> several people said, Hey, wasn't that Tony's idea? Yes, it was. <laughs> uh, John and Hector, do you guys have any questions you'd like to ask Tony today? 
Uh, well, yes, I, I, I had one, but he kind of answered already. Besides that what if sequel story, um, is there any other story or character that you would have liked to write about or develop more in your time in Marvel? You know, I would have loved to have seen various storylines through to their finish. I was, I was the guy they moved around a lot as they needed me, kind of the utility player of of, of the Marvel writers. So I'd sometimes have to leave a sign. I would have liked to have stayed on Iron Fist longer, but I was needed on something else. Um, today, I mean, I would love to revisit Tigra. Uh, mm -hmm. I once pitched a Tigra Misty Knight miniseries uh, involving, you know, Tigra is a police officer these days. Misty was, and it involved their training officer. They both had the same training officer. Uh, Misty at the beginning of the guy's career tiger at the end um you know i would love to do a series with the mole man i actually pitched a mole man series in which he was the hero and i would love to do that um i love mole man i love a, i have a funko mole man um but yeah i mean there there's things i would like to do um at marvel i mean and, and at other companies i mean my dream one of my dream projects is to do a Godzilla, uh, a 12-ish Godzilla series, which combines the original Gojira with the American version and adds a lot of detail. Um, things like that. I mean, I, obviously, I would love to write Black Lightning until the day I die. DC Comics, you know, probably won't let me do that until I can promise them that I'll die soon. Uh, you know, there's things I'd like to do. Uh, but I'm 70 years old, and even though I think I write as well as I ever did, I'm not really on the radar of any any publishers. Uh, a couple of smaller publishers have have contacted me. We're talking, but uh, you know, and I'm developing new new comic stuff all the time. I just don't know how I'm going to bring it to the marketplace. There's a lot of a uh, there's a lot of older creators being brought back for things like Marvel Legends right now. Or or uh, I wouldn't actually be that surprised if you got a call. Uh, I wouldn't mind getting the call. <laughs> there's one of my favorite series of all time is the unbeatable squirrel girl. And there's uh there's an arc with mole man where squirrel girl is nice to him. And he spends several issues in a row just being like, since you were nice to me, now we have to get married and he just won't leave her alone. And it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> I know so many guys like that. I, I had a friend who, who proposed to a woman on their second date. She was justly horrified. And then John, did you have any questions? Uh, well, my first question is silly, which is, uh, who is your favorite Godzilla monster? Mine is King Ghadira. And um, further to Hector's question, I was going to ask about if you were writing Misty Knight, what would you do with her now? Because in my Marvel Comics reader history, she's always been introduced as a character who has so much stature. She is a very level-headed character amongst some of the more nonsense. And I use nonsense in a loving way because they're often hot messes, street-level characters like. Danny Fist, uh, Danny Fist, like Danny the Iron Fist and Daredevil. So yeah, I would be really happy to read say, a Misty Knight and Tigra, maybe throwing White Tiger. But yeah, I'd love to know. Well, what you my do. favorite Godzilla, my favorite Godzilla monster, um, probably would be a tie between Mothra and Hedera. <laughs> uh, I I love that that strange Godzilla versus the Smog Monster movie. And and certainly there's a lesson there for today's world. 
as far as how to write Misty Knight, well, first off, I need an editor who can explain to me everything they've done with Misty uh, over the past few decades. Uh, I know that that the miniseries I pitched was really, it was a cop story. It, it was, you know, it did have supervillains and superheroes, but it was very much uh, the kind of story you might see on an NYPD blue or Hill Street blues. Um, I would almost certainly not have Misty sleeping around. Uh, I think kind of, you know, because she's such a beloved character, I think too many writers... Uh, go well you know we should get her you know it's kind of like you know you have this hot friend who's single and you feel you have to fix them up with somebody and that's kind of the you know i look at mystery and it seems like every time i pick up a comic with her she's got somebody new as her boyfriend um but you know i it would be the misty night tiger thing i wanted to do was cop story it was you know i love hill street blues and nypd blue um if somebody, you know, wanted to do a comic book adaptation of those or Ed McBain's 87th Precinct, uh, Don McGregor and I would probably have to fight to the death to see which one of us got to write it. Uh, Don would probably win. He's a feisty old guy. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it would have been a top story. Uh, Simone Messick beautifully played uh, Misty Knight in the Iron Fist series, if you followed that at all. Uh, well, the, the whole kind of Netflix uh, Marvel stuff, she was great. Uh, Tony, what a pleasure to hear you share some of your uh, memories and experiences. You clearly look back on these stories or times with a lot of fondness. Uh, you had such an indelible imprint on, on the Marvel work across so many different spaces. It's really an honor to get to know you. Well, I also... I also see you doing a lot of really incredible work online, on Facebook in particular, uh, about seeing creators remembered, sharing old stories, sharing people's names, uh, which is something we try to do is kind of honor the history or the stories of people here on the podcast as well. So thank you for the work you're doing there also. Thank you. Um, with that, let's jump into uh, let's jump into today's issue. Uh, uh, we'll just kind of ask, or, or you know, Tony, whatever comes to mind as we're talking <laughs> through all of this. If you have fond remembrances of these characters or continuity, let us know. Uh, we're going to be reviewing Avengers number forty-seven today, and the relevance to the X Men stories really quickly. The Avengers is kind of a composite of heroes from a lot of other places. It starts out as Iron Man and Thor and Hulk and Captain America and Giant Man and Wasp, and they're all kind of running around. Well, Captain America joins in number four. Uh, in number 16, all of the characters except for Cap leave, and he brings in three villains or former villains as the new team, which includes Hawkeye, Quicksilver, and Scarlet Witch. We've done a lot of talk on the podcast about Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. We've done focus trial episodes on both. Uh, so this is the time in their continuity when they have been celebrated as heroes for a long time. But we see a lot of the 60s tropes happening. You know, Wanda's a woman. She's the girl in the corner. Uh, Quicksilver in recent issues prior to this one has spent a lot of time getting really angry. We see him kind of becoming Magneto-like in that he's ranting against humans. Uh, you know, I'm better than they are. They are mere homo sapiens. We're seeing a lot of that kind of work done with him. And then uh, for X-Men completists, we last saw Magneto and Toad grabbed by the stranger and taken up to his planet off in space where they've been for a little while. So we haven't seen Magneto since uh, X-Men number 18, if I'm getting my numbers right, uh, and he's been gone for a little while. So as we start this issue, uh, this is in December 1967. Uh, the writer's Ray Thomas. The penciler is the incredible John Buscema. The inker is George Tuska. 
Uh, the colorist is Stan Goldberg. And this is one of the first times back in the 60s we start seeing the colorist uh, actually uh, uh, recognized. Uh, letterers, L.P. Gregory, and then the editor, of course, Stan Lee. And Stan Goldberg is a name we don't hear a lot about, but he was one of the original designers of a lot of Marvel's color schemes. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, incredible work for decades. He's also really widely remembered. He he tragically, uh, uh, he died uh, in 2013, but he tragically lost a daughter to murder in the 80s and became an advocate uh, for parents of murdered kids for a long time. Uh, look up Stan Goldberg if you don't know much about him. Uh, Tony, anything you want to share about Stan? Oh, Stan was, you know, Stan and I became friends later in his life because uh, he was brought in as a guest at one of the Mid-Ohio cons that my buddy Roger Price put on and that I would work on. And we hit it off immediately uh, through him. Um, I, I got to know some of the other people from that era. Um, and I love Stan's work. I love Stan's work. Uh, the first regular assignment he had as an artist was a Marvel book called Kathy. Uh, the, I forget, it was the Teenage Tornado was the subtitle of that. And it was a typical, you know, high school girl book. Uh, but, you know, it was clear that Stan Lee and Stan Goldberg were having a ball doing it. It's one of the few old titles that I actually collect. Um, and at one point, Stan and I talked about doing kind of a unofficial reboot of Kathy, um, bringing her into the modern world. And unfortunately, Stan passed before we could get very far on that. We had talked about it. He was interested. Uh, I was starting to develop the, the, the new series. And then he passed. Uh, but yeah, just a terrific guy, very kind. Um, and he and George Gladier, um, you know, they they sent me, you know, when I was working on my book, 1,000 Comic Books You Must Read, you know, George sent me some very rare comics because he knew I wanted to include them in the book. Uh, Stan would send me like, you know, he and George did some projects together and Stan would send me you know, advanced looks at them, uh, just two great guys. And, and I really regret, I mean, coming in, in the industry at the time I did, I got to meet so many of the great writers and artists and colorists, but of course, you know, and became worked with them, became friends with them. And unfortunately, you know, then I mourned when, when they passed. Uh, thank you for sharing those memories and telling us more. Um, uh, John, will you describe the cover of Avengers 47 for us? Okay, so I'm just going back to my front. So we've got this uh, bright, bold yellow border that I think is really eye-catching. Good use of primary colors here. And we see Magneto standing in a doorway, shooting Pietro and Wanda with his magnetism. Wanda's really got the... Uh, what my what my friend refers to as the boob snake pose where she's kind of <laughs> twisting a little bit <laughs> as she's falling down the stairs no less <laughs> yeah the the, uh, the caption reads boldly magneto walks the earth dun 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 <laughs> as his uh unknowingly at the time would be children are falling down the stairs under his wrath <laughs> uh hector what are your thoughts on this cover did you like it yeah i mean uh, the it, it's at the same time it's so um it's so representative of Nera, I guess, that the the yellow border is so eye-catching. I mean, if I saw this as a kid, I, I couldn't help myself to pick it up and read it. It's it's, it's amazing. And the the colors, I mean, 
it, it, it says something that up to this point, both Magneto and the Scarlet Witch designs are based, basically untouched to this day. I mean, there are variations about them, but it, it's and, and same for the Captain America and sometimes even for the Wasp. It's, it's, it's amazing. Now, Magneto in this issue has been stuck on a foreign planet for months, isolated with just the Toad, which has to be a challenge for anyone. <laughs> but he is, uh, I mean, he's always been arrogant, call me master, you know, smacking people around with words a lot. But in this issue, we see unhinged Magneto. He, every other line is a crazy insult. He is, uh, he is not doing well mentally <laughs> in this space. Uh, so Hector, uh, tell us about the first five pages of the book briefly, and then we will uh, spend a little bit of time uh, uh, picking it apart. All right. So uh, we opened with uh, Magneto and Toad, as I said, in a planet stranded for many months, probably. Um, I, I hate to say this because it ages me, but uh, when I was reading this, my first thought was, what has he been eating? Uh, <laughs> Has he been wearing the same clothes for months? <laughs> that's 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 not good. Um, I mean, later in the episode, we find out that magnetic powers are kind of like a Swiss Swiss knife army that works for everything. So maybe he's been eating magnetic waves or something. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, he's um, he's not happy. Uh, I think he's not happy because he has been bested, but also because he's been stranded with Toad, which is uh, not great. <laughs> Then um, the toad makes uh, a mistake, which is to mention the stranger, uh, which is like mentioning an ex to Magneto, I guess. <laughs> like, do you remember that guy? Uh, yeah, well, um, then Magneto, Magneto has an outburst. I think he needs some kind of anger management. Uh, this is one of the things why I nobody can tell me that Pietro is not his son. Is uh, Pietro has these things as well. It's like, yeah, I'm not having my way, so I'm going to yell at you, I guess. Um, and then they receive a message from Earth in the form of magnetic waves, which is as uh, akin to magic, I guess. Um, uh, and Magneto is planning to use them to either send a message or go back to Earth. We discover that the waves are the product of Dane Whitman, which uh, he has been trying to contact uh, alien races from across the cosmos. Um, I made a note here, um, at this point in Marvel continuity, uh, many, many, many races have been established on Earth mm -hmm. and on the solar system, and none of them want to talk to Dane Whitman. <laughs> um, we also uh, meet Norris. This is not a great issue for uh, minions. Uh, I think they should all unionize and uh, <laughs> campaign for rights or something because both Toad and Norris are, to me, I mean, I don't particularly like them, but it's like, poor fellas. <laughs> yeah, they're not treated well. <laughs> no. no. Uh, and then Dave Whitman has one of those flashbacks where he explains the story of his uncle, uh, which was the Black Knight when the Black Knight was evil. Uh, and he died, well, died um, uh, fighting Iron Man, who um, can swim in his iron suit, apparently. Um, and yes, and that's that's his motivation for uh, doing something good for humanity and for, uh, I guess, having the Whitman name attached to something good. Um, yeah, so um, 
then we cut to the Avengers, which um, <laughs> I, I had to laugh at this because it was uh, Steve Rogers having a tantrum, um, having a bit of a moment and uh, said, okay, I'm going to assemble my group of friends because I have something important to tell them. And that's to tell them that I am a drama queen and I'm leaving the their team. Um, uh, he's having issues. And this is right after he reformed the Avengers. Isn't, isn't that right then, uh, Chad? Um, yeah, well, the Avengers split up every other issue. Yeah. Yeah. There's always a character leaving with some sort of tantrum. But yeah, his justification yeah. <laughs> here is we need an original member here. Now that Giant Man's back, I can go. I need a normal life. I deserve to be Steve Rogers, he says. Yeah, I mean, I'm, obviously, we, we are a little bit jaded now. And we see this and it's like, yeah, sure, whatever. Uh, but in the moment, it must have been incredible to read. Jesus Christ, the Captain America leaving the Avengers. And you, you, you would believe that that happened. You know what I mean? It's, it, you would believe that it would stuck because it was a moment of changes. I mean, three villains just joined the Avengers. So anything could happen, really. So let me give a couple points of context quickly, historically. So the, the X-Men fought the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants back at the beginning. The Avengers big team was called the Masters of Evil. Everybody was evil. There's evil something. And one of their members is the Black Knight, who is a guy who had like a laser power lance and he genetically altered a horse to have wings and he flew around on this horse and battled bad uh, heroes. Uh, he dies in this battle with Iron Man and leaves his name and legacy, which apparently includes a castle uh, to his nephew, Dane Whitman, who is a scientist. Uh, some people are going to know Dane Whitman because he was recently in the Avengers, uh, I'm sorry, the Eternals movie played by Kit Harington. But uh, this is a character who will become the Black Knight in a little while. Uh, he has uh, connections to the Black Knight of like King Arthur's time. He gets a cursed sword. Uh, but yeah, we see his connection to his uncle. So Roy Thomas is bringing back an older name with a newer character here. Uh, we also see Magneto, and I swear every 60s villain has just this, this dictionary. And <laughs> Tony, I'll have you comment on this. In just, in just a couple of pages, we see Magneto called Toad, clawed fool, brainless, miserable wretch, and sniveling, sycophantic dolt. Uh, as he just screams his rage. Uh, why were the 60s bad guys so, uh, first of all, alliterative, and second of all, so mean? <laughs> uh, if he had been a member of the team, he would have been the toxic Avenger. Uh, no, they're just dicks. I mean, they're dicks. Uh, I I don't know... Uh, you know, I don't know why Roy was writing them that way. Maybe, you know, he was remembering some former boss of his. Uh, I've known there there are people in my life who I've turned into villains and in stories. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was just, it was, Stanley had a very Shakespearean, flowery uh, way of expressing, having the characters express themselves. Roy picked up on that because that was Roy's natural inclination as well. And, and, you know, that was one of the things, you know, we, we weren't told to write like Stan Lee, but since all of us had grown up loving Stan Lee's work, a lot of that was incorporated um, into that. I wrote, a, I wrote an essay back in college, I probably could find it, called How to Speak Like a 60s Marvel Supervillain, or How to Insult Like a 60s Marvel Supervillain. Like, you just create lists of words and pair them together. <laughs> uh, John, did you have any thoughts on the first five pages you wanted to share with us? Uh, well, my first thought is that, what is Toad wearing? 
And he's he's drawn very much in a sort of Quasimodo like. Like a yeah. yeah, well, just even with his hair and his face, like they veered more towards his namesake and made him much more amphibious as comics went on. But at this point in time, like the jester look combined with his body language, he looks, yeah, Quasimodo is the nearest pop culture reference I can make. But poor Toad, Magneto is such a horrible, abusive boyfriend to him. He's really bad. I can kind of see Pietro saying, Oh, no, that outfit looks really good on you, Toad. You should keep it. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> everyone uh, everyone mistreats Toad. Uh, we're going to do a focused episode on the Toad in a couple of months, but he, um, he is never given much of a backstory. Now, there's a series called X-Men Forever when Fabian Nicieza tells a little bit of Toad's backstory because he's one of the fo- focused characters. Uh, we learned that he grew up as kind of an experiment as a baby uh, from the Black Womb Projects in Alamogordo. He later ends up in an orphanage, I believe, in Manchester. Uh, and he's being attacked by a mob when Magneto saves him. And we get to see the modern Toad at that time reflecting on these origins and thinking, you know, Magneto made me beholden to him and then immediately dressed me like a court jester and treated me like someone he could hurt. And he was not kind and certainly did not know social boundaries, but everybody's just smacking him around. We're going to see in a couple of issues here, Magneto has him wear a magnetic belt so that it's easier for him to abuse Toad. Uh, and it's 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 hard to find anything redeeming about that. Uh, we can laugh about it, but uh, he's he's rather a pathetic character, written almost like the the Igor uh, <laughs> to to uh, Magneto's Doctor Frankenstein, but uh, but yeah, very Quasimodo like, if if you will. He's a he's a rather pathetic character. Uh, at the end of the storyline, we get we do get to see a moment of triumph for him, which sets him on a new story trend. Uh, but that's not in this issue. Uh, John, take us through the next five pages. What happens? Okay, so we cut to various members of the Avengers and how they're taking the breakup with Captain America. Um, The first is Hawkeye stewing whilst Natasha Black Widow is not exactly comforting him, but is asking her, uh, asking him to consider her feelings as well. And I like that in this, in this day, uh, Black Widow, she kind of has her short black hair and like a sort of page boy style haircut. I think she looks very chic. And my favorite panel in this page is the slam of the door as Hawkeye storms off. And as she has her hand up to her face, the art style really reminds me of a Roy Lichtenstein painting. Like just of like women crying with these bold blue colors in the highlights of her hair. I think it's really, really effective. Uh, We see the Wasp and Hank Pym getting on a plane whilst Hank is still stewing about Cap leaving. And then we cut to Hercules, flying off to Mount Olympus to find that it is completely deserted. And again, I really like the way that Mount Olympus is depicted here. It's kind of a vertical craggy spire with all these Highlander lightning effects around it. Again, really strong use of these bright yellows. Very, very fun. And when we actually see the summit of Mount Olympus itself, it looks like a sort of world's fair, sort of welcome to the world of tomorrow. We have chariots. It's very, very cool. I do like the way that all of this is illustrated before finally we return back to Dr. Whitman and Norris. And at this point, Norris has really had enough of Whitman and decides that he's going to knock Whitman out to try and get all of the worshipping multitudes, quote, for the discovery of this magnetism. The world of science was really, really different in the 60s, wasn't it? It really was. Yeah, it was kind of a fuck you got mine sort of vibe. (laughs) The, uh, the... 
uh, Magneto and the Toad uh, pick up on these waves and then use it to get back to Earth. They uh, they immediately turn against Norris uh, and uh, uh, try to just kind of take command over things. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna touch on that, which kind of concludes the rest of the issue in a second. But I do appreciate Hercules's fashion as. <laughs> oh, he's wearing a number. <laughs> We've got the chest harness, and he's the the gayest uh, <laughs> of the Avengers. I mean, it's um, this little orange dishcloth around his waist. In uh, in the recent Guardians of the Galaxy series, it is revealed that he is bisexual, which is something we didn't get back in the '60s. But uh, that's kind of fun. Tony, how do you reconcile '60s Black Widow with the character that she becomes later? Um, Black, I I see Natasha was. Trained as a spy, trained as somebody to infiltrate. To me, that makes her an actress. So I can reconcile them by just saying that a lot of times when she's maybe less Natasha than than the current version, she was acting. She was being what she wanted the people around her to think she was. But in reality, I would just ignore stuff like that. Here's my concept of continuity is core values. Establish the core values of the character. And then don't worry if something in a past issue contradicts that. Um, I don't ever have to, for example, see another Spider-Man story with the Spider-Man, the Spider-Mobile. Um, if, if I write Black Lightning again, there are whole chunks of what other people have done with Black Lightning that will never be mentioned, that that will be consigned to the fire pits. Um, these characters have been around for decades, half a century in some cases or more, and it, it just doesn't all add up. Uh, so my feeling is figure out the core values of the character and go with that. That's a that's a smart approach. And I like that concept of her as an actress. She I mean, women in the 60s didn't get a lot of chance to shine. She's one of the few that really stands yeah. out. Uh, uh, Hector, did you have any thoughts on this section of the book? I will, no, I will. I got mesmerized by Hercules there for a moment. Um, <laughs> I'm, the, 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 I think is is my favorite character of the issue, probably is Norris. Um, he thinks that by making a scientific breakthrough, he's going to attract the <laughs> admiration of multitudes. <laughs> like, dude. This guy needed some attention. Yeah. Uh, so Magneto and Toad arrive back on Earth and Magneto immediately lashes out at Norris, who tries to turn against him by hitting him with a giant wrench <laughs> and spinning it through the air. Uh, he calls Toad more names. We get miserable wretch and spineless clown and groveling gargoyle. Uh, Toad is so eager to impress Magneto. Uh, he he says, uh, you know, you know all this other stuff, but I know castles. Let me show you around, Master. I don't know why Toad knows castles. There's a great mystery of his origins. Uh, but he leads Magneto down to the dungeons where Norris is tossed in. Now, we get this bizarre image uh, of, of Magneto and Toad's faces on page 12. Uh, Magneto with a giant nose and Toad looking just wretched. <laughs> we'll post an image on social media, but... Uh, for a lot of for a lot of readers, they haven't read the older stuff, right? Back issues probably weren't super easy to come by, so uh, recaps became pretty necessary. Um, now, if you've been reading the Avengers as a kid in the '60s, you've seen Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch go through a lot, and you know about their origins in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, but they've never seen Magneto in this title before. Uh, 
So Magneto coming here was probably a big deal for the readers at the time, because here's this character. People have been waiting for him to come after Pietro and Wanda for a while. So we get to see a flashback to how he rescued them uh, when they were attacked by a human mob years before, and then kind of made him beholden or made them beholden to him as he recruited them for the Brotherhood. And Magneto wants them back. He wants to reform the Brotherhood now that he's back on Earth. And so he immediately sends a signal to them to call them to this castle. And when they arrive, he attacks them with several suits of armor, which they pretty easily defeat. Uh, We we see uh, Magneto's powers are very much like magnetic rays coming out of his fingers back then. And once they are kind of surrounded, uh, he calls the suits of armor robots. Uh, But once they have triumphed, uh, Magneto knocks Pietro and Wanda out pretty easily. He conks uh, Pietro on the head. He chokes Wanda out basically with a chain around her center. Uh, And now they are his captives. And Toad is thrilled. He's jumping around all happy. Uh, and they are ready to show the world that they are back and better than ever. Uh, it's a really interesting um, turn. Again, this is kind of Magneto at his worst, but we also get some surprising moments in the coming issues where he really goes back to fighting for mutant causes again, which is what we love about him so much, is his willingness to take a different stance of, uh, than Professor X and, and really push hard. Uh, Tony, what were your thoughts on Magneto as a character? I, I don't think he's one you've ever written, but are you a fan of this um, you know, I, I like the backstory that Chris Claremont gave him. Uh, again, it's kind of, there's a lot of, of inconsistencies in the way Magneto has been handled over the years, but I kind of like the idea that he's a more militant fighter for mutant rights. I think that, con- well, I don't know if it does today, but that contrasted well with Xavier's more uh, charitable approach to, to, convincing mankind that mutants were people too. Um, I like that about him. Uh, Again, he's just, he'd be a tough one for me to write just because he's such a complicated, complicated character. And unless I had, you know, maybe I just call up Chris Claremont and say, okay, Chris, give me, give me the bare bones of who Magneto is today before I try to write him. Well, we just did a, Two two-hour episodes on Gray Malkin. Feel free to listen. We'll give you his whole backstory. <laughs> uh, uh, Hector and John, what are your thoughts on Magneto? Uh, uh, well, I th- this issue has something that I really love about Magneto, and it's that he and, and you can probably see it in, the, in his relationship with Toad. Um, he doesn't respect people that don't challenge him. Um, he does it with with Pietro and Wanda. I mean, he he lands on Earth, and the first thing he does is to call the two members of the Brotherhood that never agreed with him. Sure. And um, that's probably why his relationship with Charles has lasted for so long, because he needs the conflict. He needs um, somebody to bounce off. Um, I don't know. I, I I guess it was probably not the intention, but if if you pull the threads. This is something that has happened through the story of Magnet, uh, the history of Magneto. And um, it makes him be quite terrible to Toad, <laughs> but <laughs> I'd rather see the, the positive side of it. And I love that even though he knows that Pietro and Wanda will never agree with him, he still doesn't know that they are Avengers, but uh, he he knows that they oppose him at every, every possible way. Uh, wasn't it Pietro that actually um, um, 
made made him fail a couple of plans of of Magneto in. in well, yeah, 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 yeah. Pietro regularly betrayed Magneto in the early X-Men. Yeah. yeah, I mean, would you would you call him when you land on Earth after months? <laughs> I wouldn't, but he does, and I, I love that about him. Uh, John, what were your thoughts? And the great, great insights, Hector. Brilliant. Uh, I agree to Hector's point as well, because looking at the panel you mentioned with the close-up of Magneto and Toad's faces, where we're seeing the flashback of him meeting Wanda and Pietro for the first time, you can tell that these people really had a positive effect on him, or at the very least, a memorable effect on him, as the people like Toad, who are consistently present in his life, and yet he just belittles and doesn't value them. So I, I agree that he obviously has these deeper connections to people who actively challenge him and maybe even leave him because that forces him to confront either his own behavior or ignore it, but nevertheless acknowledge that his actions have caused other people to act in turn. And I think that's really good the way that this is shown in this issue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and did you, did you guys have any thoughts on the art on these last few pages, these suits of armor kind of rushing in and attacking? I really liked that. I mean... Have we seen Magneto perform a feat like this again? I mean, I'm sure we have, and I just haven't read it, but where he's effectively puppeteering multiple suits of armor at once, each with different moving limbs and so on and so forth. Yeah, I don't know if this I don't know if this exact method, but it's it's pretty great. Hmm. Uh, Hector, any thoughts on the art from you? Oh, and no, I was just I was just looking at that sequence in particular. It's it's super dynamic. I mean, um you can see how these these classic comic books were laying out the the, the, the groundwork for everything that came after, because that you, you can you can still see in some comic books today, the angles and the 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 way of uh, the way a character moves or the way uh, something slams like the maze on the floor, and you can, you can see this is like the origin of it, like the ingredients of everything that came after. Yeah, it, it's it's very cool. Now, uh, you mentioned Chris Claremont a moment ago, Tony. Are you friends with Chris? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I love getting together with Chris. Chris has, has expressed his joy at how well I was treated on, on, Black, on the Black Lightning TV show. And I've expressed my dismay that Chris Claremont uh, isn't treated better by Marvel Studios and Sony because I got really upset. I can't remember exactly which X-Men movie it was. But there were no, there wasn't even special thanks at the end of it. And I'm going, where the fuck is is Chris Claremont's special thanks? You know, ninety percent of the stuff in this movie was Chris. So yeah, I, Chris Claremont was one of those guys. I don't understand why Marvel keeps him on the bench. Uh, you know, I don't understand why anybody, you know, movies, comics, anything wouldn't be hungry. To get Chris on a project, he is one of the greatest writers of of our time, yeah. comics writers of our time, and I just don't think he gets his due. Everything we love about the X Men as fans, which represents safety for so many disenfranchised communities, from queer people and women to people of color, uh, it, it's in large part solely due to Chris and the way other character or other writers have portrayed these characters since then. Yeah, he's he's an absolute force. Um, uh, what a wonderful tribute to hear from you. Thank you for sharing that, Tony. Um, as we are kind of wrapping up, uh, John and Hector, I know you guys are, are long-term X-Men fans. Had you read this run in Avengers before? Uh, no. Um, 
if if it had an X on the cover, I've probably read it at some point. Um, uh, it's been many many years, and I've had a lot of time. Uh, but no, Avengers. Um, I, do you remember that that issue of I think it was Uncanny Avengers where they go to uh, Mojo World and they are all immersed in a fantasy where the Uncanny Avengers are uh, part of uh, high school gangs um, and the X Men are like the goth kids and the Avengers are the yucks. Well, I've all, I've always seen the Avengers like that. It's like Avengers are like the you know the cool kids, the cool wide reach kids and. The X Men were everything for me. <laughs> I mean, as a standard, I feel like the X Men have their shit together much more often than the Avengers do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and John, had you read these before? I'm afraid I hadn't read this particular series. Uh, like Hector, I mostly read a lot of the X Men stuff as well as some of the Spider Man series that were coming out from this time. So it's kind of good to pivot into the Avengers stories that are very X adjacent. We get some great stuff coming up in the next couple of issues, including Magneto storming the United Nations and demanding that mutants be given their own country for the first time. Uh, so we, we we see this kind of separatist philosophy from Magneto really standing up in Roy Thomas's work with him here. It's it's uh, it's really good. Uh, Tony, as we kind of shared the content of this issue, did any memories show up for you or, or uh, well, any I, thoughts about I remember, this content? I remember how much I loved uh, the team of John Buscema and George Tuska um you know for a long time when when john was starting out at marvel he either inked himself which was beautiful or he got inkers that really seemed to appreciate what he was doing there and i thought the busema tusca team was great a uh, big fan of, of both of them i worked with george uh quite a bit on other things um that i remember the art i remember you know at that time in my life i couldn't wait to get the new marvel comics they came out twice twice a month uh, the local drugstore would get half the Marvel comics for that month. And I'd be there the day they came out. I was just a huge Marvel fan at that point. I still read some other, some DC books and, and Charlton and gold key, but really the Marvels were, were the, my main interest back then. And Roy Roy's Avengers was always a high point for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. He did such beautiful work with these characters. Uh, what an honor to hear uh, your thoughts and reactions, uh, John and Hector, primarily from your artistic perspective uh, and then X-Men fan perspective. And then, Tony, you're such a repository for this gorgeous <laughs> classic history. Uh, it's incredible. I mean, I mentioned Stan Goldberger and you're like, oh, yeah, Stan. Like, it's, it's so great to talk to you. Um, coming up on Grey Malkin Lane in the next couple of episodes, uh, we're going to be reviewing Avengers 48 with uh, with the co-authors and professors Jessica Baldanzi and Hussein Rashid. Uh, uh, and then Sarah Century is going to be joining us for that. Uh, on Avengers 49, we're going to be uh, reviewing with Anne Nascenti and Connor Goldsmith from the Cerebrocast. So we've got some really incredible stuff, as well as an interview with uh, Linda Fight coming up, which is just uh, uh, astounding. Uh, I imagine that you are uh, contemporaries in some regards with both Linda and Anne, Tony. Yes? Anne was, Anne was pretty much after my time in terms okay. of I wasn't really working regularly for Marvel or DC uh, by the time Anne was starting to write Daredevil and 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 Longshot, things like that. Uh, but I certainly know her work and like it. Uh, Linda, I, I knew briefly. You know, I knew her when she was married to Herb. I actually met her early on. I believe she came to a to a Detroit Triple Fanfare, and I got to know her there. And I saw some of her early scripting stuff. 
they had a writing some Western stories and everything back in, in the sixties before the Western books went reprint. But yeah, I mean, contemporaries, yeah, although like Linda was there before me and, and probably came along maybe about 10, 15 years after me. Fantastic. Thank you for uh, sharing. Now, as, as we're wrapping up, let's go in the order of Hector, John, and then Tony, where can each, uh, where, where can people find you online? Uh, what can we have and what do we have to look forward coming up for you? Uh, and you don't have to share any personal information here, of course, just share what you're comfortable sharing. Uh, Hector, where can people find you and what do you have coming up? Okay, so I am uh, Snivitz on most social media. Uh, that's S-N-I-B-B-I-T-S, except on Twitter, where somebody stole it. Uh, I'm T-O-R underscore Odinson there. I cannot talk about what I'm working right now, but um, on, um, oh, on June 15th, the printed version of the comic book Divestrasse is coming out. Uh, I did the colors there. And uh, both Greg Locker, Tim Fish, Lucas Gattoni, Will Dennis, and all that have been working really, really hard on getting that edition ready. And I'm really excited for that. And then John. Uh, you can find me online, mostly on Twitter, but I'm also on Instagram under Pastor Rake. That's P-A-S-T-E-L-R-A-K-E. I'll be posting lots of artwork, commission me or just come and chat with me. I'm always happy to meet new people. It's always really fun, but yeah, I mostly just spam my artwork into the void. Come say hi. <laughs> uh, and I've worked with both of you. I've commissioned art from both of you and you're both incredible artists that were so lovely to work with. So yeah, if you're looking to have some commissioned work done, uh, please contact both Hector and John. They're, they're incredible artists, very different styles, uh, but, uh, but from really revolutionary, beautiful places. It was such an honor to get to know you both today. Thank you for being here. It was nice meeting you finally as well. Yeah. And then, uh, Tony, where can people find you? And do we have anything to look forward to? Uh, well, they can find me on Facebook uh, under the name Tony Isabella. Uh, there's also a few other Facebook pages that I'm associated with. There's Tony Isabella's Authentic Black Lightning Group. Uh, also, the official Tony Isabella message board. Uh, I have a blog, Tony Isabella's, Tony Isabella's Bloggy Thing. Uh, which hasn't been as active as I would like, but I actually just posted a blog yesterday. Uh, there's a feature called Last Kiss, which you can find at gocomics.com. It's created by John Lusting. Uh, it, it's old romance comics panels with new gags, and I write one or two gags a, a week for John. And I'm currently the, the biggest thing in... in in front of me right now is I'm writing the second volume of a book called July 1963, a pivotal month in the comic book life of Tony Isabella. Uh, I am, since July 63 was the month I decided I wanted to write comic books for a living, I am uh, acquiring, reading, and writing about every one of the 138 comics that came out that month. Uh, the first volume came out a couple of years ago. I'm working on the second one. It'll be seven or eight volumes by the time I'm done. But that's that's what's in front of me right now, uh, working on that book. I love that we have this room full of people who pursue their passions uh, with uh, with gusto. It makes me really happy. I look forward to the book, Tony. Um, 
uh, for all of you, but Tony, for you in particular, I uh, I just am honored to get to know you. I grew up reading your work. Comics for me for so many years were uh, a place to escape from adversity and hardship. And um, I, I, I didn't start reading until the 90s, but I went back and back and picked up everything along the way. And then, like I said, as a handbook writer, just uh, really getting to know your work, getting to know the man behind the work is such an absolute honor. I'm, a, I'm an enormous fan of yours, so thank you for this time today. Uh, all right, everybody, thank you for listening, and we will see you back here next time on Gray Malkin. Thank you so much for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. I'm pouring a lot of time, labor, and love into this podcast, and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here, and I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Gray Malkin Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Gray Malkin Lane can be found on Twitter at Gray Malkin P, P like podcast, and on Instagram under Gray Malkin Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. Please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement on Patreon. We'll see you back here next episode on Gray Malkin Lane.